Hey everyone, and happy almost New Year! Welcome to another edition of Theater Shove It. I'm your host Greg, and I'm here early this week because I have seen all the movies that were coming out this weekend. So I thought I'd bring you my take on the latest movies playing in theaters and streaming on your TV, so that if you want to go to the movies this holiday weekend, you know which ones you should go to. Also this week, Be Kind Rewind concludes the 52-week movie challenge with a look at the film you voted for. For our featured movies this week, A Woman Lives a Life of Adversity in The Color Purple, a group of young men become unlikely heroes in The Boys in the Boat, a young couple goes through a health crisis in American Symphony, a family of wrestlers face one crisis after another in The Iron Claw, and a car maker faces challenges on and off the racetrack in Ferrari. Let's get started. First up, a beloved classics Broadway adaptation hits the big screen. This is the color purple. You keep your head held high, just like Mom taught us. What if I say go? You got to stand up. Hell no. There's gonna be some changes made. This ain't me. Hush. We need to look like we belong. In a musical retelling of the Alice Walker novel, The Color Purple tells the story of Celie, played in her youth by Felicia Pearl Mapassi, and as an adult by American Idol winner Fantasia Barino. Celie and her sister Nettie, played by The Little Mermaid's Halle Bailey, live with an abusive father and can only find peace and enjoyment when they are alone and away from their home at places like the shoreline where they sing and play. A very young Celie is pregnant for the second time, presumably by her own father, and again for the second time when she gives birth, her father uses the infant as property and sells it. He soon runs into Mr., played by Coleman Domingo, and does the same with Celie, selling her to him so she can be his wife. Instead of having freedom from her abusive father, Celie is now in an abusive relationship with Mr., who commands power and control over her through violent outbursts. One night, Nettie runs away to Celie's and is quickly thrown out by Mr. when she refuses his sexual advances. This causes the sisters to lose contact with each other over the years since Mr. hides all of Nettie's letters for decades. Complicating the situation is the fact that Mr. has a side piece named Shug Avery, played by Oscar-nominated actress Taraji P. Henson. Shug is a blues singer who travels from place to place. She has a reputation of being loose, but also an independent free spirit. Living with this knowledge, Celie spends her days very depressed and at a loss for hope. The only comfort she has is in her friendship with Mr. Sun and his wife, Sophia, played by Danielle Brooks. Over time, both Sophia and Shug do what they can to instill confidence and power into Celie. Does it work? When I saw the trailer for this, I predicted it would be a see-it. And I give this film a... Huge see it. This film was a joy to behold. I was unfamiliar with any of the music from the Broadway musicals, so I wasn't sure how they could take such a dour storyline and turn it into a musical, but they really did a great job in doing that. The songs move the story forward in an authentic way, and at almost two and a half hours, it moved right along from beginning to end and did not have any section that I feel could have been edited down or removed. 
The highlight of this film is the performances. Every single one is a class act, especially Danielle Brooks and Fantasia Barino. Since she won American Idol back in 2004, I have been rooting for Fantasia to break out in a similar way that Jennifer Hudson did, who was also on her season of American Idol. But with a challenging personal life, Fantasia never really found her footing. She really breaks out in a big way with this movie, and I hope it leads to further success. There are people who are mixed about the performance of Taraji P. Henson. I loved it, and I know that Brooks is a likely Oscar nominee, but I would not be disappointed if Henson somehow snuck in there as well. Best Supporting Actress this year seems to be the only category that isn't stacked to the roof with contenders, so she does have a chance of getting in there, and I hope she does. Don't let the nature of the storyline prevent you from going to see this movie. It really is an uplifting crowd-pleaser, and if you're a fan of the original movie, I think you'll really enjoy this adaptation as well. Next, an underdog team of rowers get the chance of a lifetime. This is The Boys in the Boat. You're announcing the team today. Are you going to make it? We rowed out of need. Come on, boys! The need to stay in school. The need to eat. To sleep. We gotta keep these right. As long as we stay on the team. Washington Huskies coach is bringing an inexperienced boat to competition. They said we couldn't compete with the richest schools in the nation. The Washington boat is taking the lead. Seconds under the course record. Olympic year this year. Olympic year? I didn't realize. That bunch of kids load like no one else that's ever come through here. At the Berlin Summer Olympics in 1936, a scrappy United States rowing team competed among the world's best and left Berlin national heroes. This film tells the story of how that team came to be. Based on Daniel James Brown's novel, Academy Award-winning actor and director George Clooney takes the director's chair in telling us the story of Joe Rance, played by Callum Turner. Joe is a student at the University of Washington and is about to be kicked out of school for failure to pay his tuition. Since it is in the throes of the Great Depression, Joe has an incredibly difficult time finding work. And to top it off, he is homeless since his mother has died and his father has abandoned him. An ad is posted at school recruiting a junior varsity rowing team. If you are selected for the team, you are financially supported with room and board as well as tuition at the university. This intrigues Joe, but he is warned by the coach that rowing is the most difficult sport in the world and that not even the average human body could do it well since rowers need twice the lung capacity of the ordinary person. The coach, played by Joel Edgerton, is a tough coach who has an underlying soft side. He sees the desperation in Joe, who works his way onto the team. The film then takes us through the team's rise in popularity and the challenges it faced before being selected to represent the United States at the Olympics. When not in the boat, Joe is romancing a precocious classmate named Joyce, played by Hadley Robinson. Joyce reminds Joe of his childhood crush on her, and the two begin a relationship while he is training for the team. In a time where the struggle was real, the team works with odds stacked against them, especially while competing against Ivy League schools that have wealthy donors supporting their efforts. When I saw the trailer for this, I predicted it would be a shove-it, and I give this film a... Mild See It. This film was just okay. I mean, you know from the moment you sit down in your chair how it's going to go, so if you're looking for something to surprise you, this is not it. 
However, if you're looking for an uplifting underdog story to see during the holiday season, you may enjoy this one very much. Nothing really stands out as excellent in the movie, but nothing really stands out as horrible either. It really is a non-offensive film that families can watch together during the holidays. That's not to say it isn't an enjoyable film. It moves along nicely, and I didn't walk out feeling I had wasted my time. It's just a little too old-fashioned for my taste, but I don't regret seeing it. If you like old-fashioned underdog movies, you'll like this one. Next, a late-night band leader and his wife face uncertain odds when her health takes a turn for the worse. This is American Symphony. I'm always in awe of Zuleika, how she deals with hardship. My first day of chemo, his 11 Grammy nominations were announced. I won the biggest prize in music and come home. She's back in the hospital. This is what we're dealing with. Butterfly. Musician John Baptiste is the former band leader for The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. He's an Oscar winner for his music in the Disney Pixar film Soul, which, by the way, is coming to theaters for the first time ever in a few weeks. He has armfuls of Grammy Awards and many other accomplishments. In this film, we follow the journey he takes with his now wife, Sulika, as she battles leukemia for the second time in her life in 2022. The news of the second diagnosis came at a moment he should have been on cloud nine. Her first day of treatment was the very same day he became the most nominated artist at the Grammy Awards with 11 nominations, including Album of the Year. At the same time, Baptiste was undertaking a deeply personal project, composing what he called American Symphony, a project where he wanted to blend multiple generations of music into a piece that highlights the contributions of people of color. Having to do this under normal circumstances is one thing. To do this while the person you love is undergoing serious treatment for cancer is another. The film follows the couple's emotional journey through her illness as well as John's ascent in popular culture that continues today. I give this film a... See it. This is a very moving documentary. For me, it was fascinating to see how Baptiste channeled his emotions and feelings into the music he was creating. I saw an interview with him recently, and he said that they weren't planning on releasing this as a documentary for people to see. That they, you know, they just wanted the journey documented for themselves. But when the film was finished, they decided it was so good that they wanted everyone to see it. And I'm glad they did that because it really is a fascinating look at how somebody in the public eye can be going through such highs professionally, yet be in the depths of sorrow privately. As someone who takes in entertainment on a regular basis, I only see the public view, and it's easy to assume that somebody who is receiving Grammy Awards and Oscars and professional successes and movie roles, that everything in their life is perfect, when in reality, it often is not. I'm sure a lot of this film was edited to only reveal what the couple wanted us to see, and that there's more somewhere else that remains private only to them, but you do get enough of those private moments to see the pain and anguish the couple went through in order to come out the other side. It is very good. Next, a 1980s family of wrestlers face sibling jealousies, internal struggles, and family crises. This is the Iron Claw. Together, we can do anything. 
We're here to restore justice to the wrestling federation that our father built with his own two hands. The hands that were passed down to us. The hands that will deliver the iron clock to you. So what do you think? Like, we're alive. Love your family, Dad. Don't we, Uncle? Yes, sir. Oh, man, that makes me so happy. I talked to you about something. Dad's too tough on us. You gotta say something. Baby, that's what your brother's for. Feel that? Ah. You feel that? Ah. That's pressure. In the mid-1980s and early 90s, wrestling was at a fever pitch, and part of that legacy was the Von Erich family. This film tells the story of that tragic family as it navigates the course of fame and the pressures from within their own family. Starring Zac Efron as Kevin Von Erich, the film begins with Kevin worried that his father is applying too much pressure on his youngest brother, Mike, to become a wrestler instead of pursuing his dream of being a musician. Mike is played by Stanley Simons. Kevin is soon joined in the ring by his brother, David, played by Harris Dickinson. After the match, Kevin meets a woman named Pam, played by Lily James. They begin a relationship that continues today. He tells her about the Von Erich curse. He feels his family is doomed after his oldest brother, Jack Jr., was killed by an accidental electrocution when he was just a toddler. Kevin thinks that ever since his father changed their last name from Atkison to Von Erich, the family has suffered endless tragedies. Little does he know what's to come. His career begins to rise, but is derailed after a messy fight with world champion Harley Race, an incident that puts his brother, David, in the forefront in their father's ambition. Adding to the family sport is brother Carrie, an aspiring Olympic athlete played by Jeremy Allen White. Carrie's Olympic hopes are dashed when the 1980 Olympic boycott happens. He is encouraged by their father to fight alongside Kevin and David, which he does quite successfully. Without giving too much away, the rest of the film shows that Kevin had every reason to believe there was a curse on his family as tragedy after tragedy strikes different family members one by one. When I saw the trailer for this, I predicted it would be a see it, and I give this film a mild see it. This is a well-made film and contains some great performances throughout. However, I can't help but feel a bit underwhelmed by the whole thing. The story here is incredibly tragic, yet it seemed that the filmmakers or scriptwriters just wanted to throw the tragedy out there and then move on. We never get to see the family grieving, and maybe it's because they didn't grieve, they weren't emotional about it, but even if that happened, I would have liked to have seen that explored, if that was the case. So, I think I was looking for something to be a little more deeply emotional, but the storyline was too concerned with moving the story right along without showing too much of the impact on the family. It is all very surface level. Apparently, there's another brother that wasn't even mentioned in the film who suffered the same fate as many members of his family. There is a scene toward the end that really did not belong in this film at all. It shows the family members reuniting in heaven, and it really just took me out of the film. It did not go with any of the rest tonally, and I think that scene could have been eliminated entirely. But don't get me wrong, it's a very good movie. It's just that when I heard what it was about, and the story behind it, I was expecting something to be very, very gritty, and it wasn't. I think that's a lost opportunity, especially for something that's trying to contend for awards. I think if it had done that, especially with Efron's character, he may be a player at this year's Oscars, because he was quite good, but the script did not allow him that big, emotional, impactful role throughout the film that usually gets people nominated for an Oscar. 
But again, it's a good movie, and if it's something you may be interested in seeing, especially if you know the history of this family, you'll probably enjoy it. And as lukewarm as I am in this review, I did enjoy it. I just wanted to love it instead of liking it. Finally, a famous car maker faces bankruptcy and the challenges of staying relevant. This is Ferrari. All of us are racers. It's our deadly passion. Our terrible joy. No wonder we need to be back. How can I stay wave? Michael Mann is a director known for intense, fast-paced films such as Heat, Collateral, and Miami Vice, so you would think it would be safe to assume that Ferrari would be the perfect vehicle for him. It is the summer of 1957, and Enzo Ferrari, played here by Oscar-nominated actor Adam Driver, is nearing the age of 60. His business is on the verge of bankruptcy as the landscape of auto racing is going through a sort of metamorphosis. Ferrari is a legend in Italy, and he is trying to maintain that reputation. The film opens on the track as he watches his driver try to break a speed record. With his company on the verge of collapse, he knows that success on the track can be a make-it-or-break-it moment for the company. He faces pressure from everyone to move away from just making racing cars to begin manufacturing vehicles that anyone can buy. He stubbornly resists the pressure. At home, Ferrari faces complications as well. His marriage to Laura Ferrari is on thin ice after the death of their son Dino, who succumbed to muscular dystrophy at the age of 24. Played by Oscar winner Penelope Cruz, Laura is a grieving mother who must not only deal with her son's death, but also her husband's philandering. She even goes as far as to shoot a gun at him, purposefully missing him, to make a point. She knows he's having an affair and only requests that he be home before the maids arrive in the morning, something he failed to do this time. She is also his business partner, who is worried about the state of the company. On the side, Enzo is having an affair with Lena, played by Shailene Woodley. He has fathered a child with her named Piero, and is struggling with the fact that he cannot publicly acknowledge him for fear that Laura will find out about his existence. The rest of the film examines the puzzles that Enzo must piece together both on and off the race course. When I saw the trailer for this, I predicted it would be a see-it, and I give this film a... See-it. I really enjoyed this. Although this is probably the least intense film that Michael Mann has made in quite a while, it worked for me. I thought they balanced the appropriate amount of time on the racing scenes as well as the life-at-home scenes. Adam Driver is stone-cold as Enzo Ferrari. It is a performance that is easy to forget about when thinking about awards consideration because it is so low-key and icy, but it is ruthless in a very subtle way. The best performance in the film is that of Penelope Cruz. Her performance as a grieving mother as well as a rage-filled wife was fantastic. With the Best Supporting Actress category, as I mentioned earlier, being a little bit open this year, I'm hoping she can somehow sneak in with a nomination. She is electric every time she shows up on the screen. The same cannot be said for Shailene Woodley, whose performance was just okay. I felt like her Italian accent kept coming and going, and it just wasn't a solid performance from her. But you know what? That's okay, because there's enough in here to compensate for that. 
This is a very slow burn of a film, and you know, though, that it's leading up to something huge at the end, which does happen, and the climax almost took my breath away when I saw it on screen. If you're into racing and biographies, I think you might enjoy this. It's not getting the best reviews, but I enjoyed it. That's it for this week's featured films. To recap, The Color Purple is in theaters now and is a huge see-it and is my pick of the week, and I'm probably going to go see it again tomorrow. The Boys in the Boat is in theaters now and is a mild see-it. American Symphony is on Netflix now and is a see-it. The Iron Claw is in theaters now and is a mild see-it. And Ferrari is in theaters now and is a see-it. Finally, some good choices after last week's garbage offerings. Now, let's move on to the segment where I let you know the latest titles now available for home viewing. It's time for Now Streaming. Coming to Netflix on Monday, January 1st, is Oscar winner Denzel Washington's third time at bat in The Equalizer 3. It's a decent enough action thriller that may not be the strongest in the series, but it is entertaining nonetheless. You can listen to my full review on episode 106. And The Dreadfully Dull Foe stars Oscar nominees Saoirse Ronan and Paul Meskel as a couple facing an impossible choice that may have existential consequences. It was shockingly disengaging considering the talent behind it. It is streaming on Amazon Prime beginning Friday, January 5th, and to hear my full review, listen to episode 114. Now it's time for my segment where I look at films from the past. This is Be Kind, Rewind... This week marks the conclusion of the 52-week movie challenge, and the topic was a film that is celebrating its 50th anniversary this coming year. And your choices were Earthquake, Herbie Rides Again, and Murder on the Orient Express. You voted and chose Murder on the Orient Express. This is no ordinary passenger. Monsieur Poirot is a detective. This is the world's most celebrated crime fighter. I take a professional interest in crime. Agatha Christie's brilliant Belgian detective. Oh, Belgians? I always thought you were French. Albert Finney is Detective Hercule Poirot. This is no ordinary mystery. That's nothing. This is Agatha Christie's most perfect crime. Murder on the Orient Express. Directed by Sidney Lumet, and based on the classic Agatha Christie novel, Murder on the Orient Express follows her reliable detective Hercule Poirot as he boards the Orient Express in December 1935. He has been summoned back to London and is able to get a seat in a compartment thanks to his friend, Signor Bianchi. Poirot is played by Oscar-nominated actor, the late great Albert Finney. Poirot's presence on the train gives several passengers anxiety. One passenger, named Ratchet, asks Poirot for protection as he has received multiple death threats. Poirot is uninterested in providing this service. Well, later on, Ratchet is discovered dead, having been stabbed multiple times. With the train having been delayed due to overwhelming snow, Poirot is encouraged by Bianchi to solve the crime. It turns out Ratchet was not who he appeared to be, and that many on board had motive and opportunity to kill him. The film follows Poirot as he uncovers evidence and narrows down the culprit, or culprits. Released on November 21, 1974, Murder on the Orient Express was a financial success. 
In addition to Finney, the film starred a treasure trove of actors including Lauren Bacall, Jacqueline Bissett, John Gielgud, Sean Connery, Vanessa Redgrave, and Norman Bates himself, Anthony Perkins. The film even earned a Best Supporting Actress Oscar for Ingrid Bergman. During the promotion for the film, many of the actors revealed their motives for joining the cast were mostly to have the opportunity to work with someone else who had been cast, with Lauren Bacall writing in her memoir that many indicated a desire to work with Albert Finney. Getting the rights to film this adaptation was a challenge. Christie had been disappointed in previous Hollywood adaptations of her work and did not want to see another one be made. However, she begrudgingly acquiesced because of her appreciation of the producer's previous films, Romeo and Juliet and Tales of Beatrix Potter. Interior scenes were shot on sound stages, while exterior scenes were shot near a railway workshop in France. While shooting, there were production concerns about a lack of snow in the mountains leading up to shooting. Plans were made to truck in large amounts of snow. Fortunately for the budget of the film, a heavy snowfall happened the night before shooting, solving the problem. And it was a good thing that the delivery was cancelled because the trucks that were supposed to supply the snow had gotten stuck in the snow themselves. When the film premiered in November 1974, Agatha Christie attended the event. It was the only film premiere of one of her novels she had ever attended. The event turned out to be Christie's last public appearance as she died 14 months later on January 12, 1976. She was actually impressed with the final production and praised Finney's performance in particular as being the closest performance to her idea of who Poirot was. However, she was not impressed with the mustache she had for the role. She thought it was too understated for the detective. The film was a critical hit and was nominated for six Academy Awards. In addition to Bergman's win, Finney was nominated for Best Actor, as was the screenplay, costume design, cinematography, and score. When she won her Oscar, her third, Bergman ended up apologizing to another nominee in her category, Valentina Cortesi, who was nominated for the film Day for Night. She asked her for forgiveness as she felt Cortesi's performance was more deserving for the award. Murder on the Orient Express is available to stream on Paramount+. So, that's it for the 52-week movie challenge. I hope you enjoyed revisiting these films as much as I did. Be Kind Rewind is going to take a little break as I return to the segment Oscar Outlook with updates on the state of the race in various categories leading up to this year's Academy Awards. Look for that to start up again next week with an entire episode of my predictions for the upcoming Golden Globes Awards. So that's it for this episode of Cedar Shove It. Thank you so much for listening this week. I really appreciate all the support and time you've given to this podcast throughout this year. Support your local theaters by going to see some of the movies I reviewed this month, and while you're at it, share my podcast with your movie and TV-loving friends and family. Don't forget, you can drop me a line at cedarshoveit at gmail.com and follow me on Instagram and letterboxd at cedarshoveit and rate me wherever you get your podcasts. Come back in a few days as we start our third season of Cedar Shove It to hear my predictions for January's releases in a new episode of Trailer Talk, and then I'll return the week after with the first reviews of 2024, including the hopefully scary film Night Swim. Until then, take care, everyone. Happy New Year, and have a great week and an even better 2024. This episode of Theater Shove It was recorded in Orlando, Florida, and is produced by Gregory G. Productions. Music by Mysterio Music. All rights reserved. <laughs>